Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4. In November, a movie entitled Finding Life will be released by Voice of the Martyrs, which documents the lives of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. The Wormbrands were Jewish Christians living in Romania when the Nazi regime seized power and began persecuting Jews. They had the opportunity to leave Romania just before the borders were shut down. They wrestled over what the Lord was calling them to do. Should they stay and face persecution with the strong probability of being imprisoned? Or should they leave and find safety in a country where they would be free and able to openly practice their faith in Christ? There's a powerful scene in the movie as they're sitting at the border, about to be examined by patrol guards when Sabrina quotes to her husband the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They turn the car around and chose to remain in Romania where they were persecuted and imprisoned. They stayed because the Lord called them to stay and to work to advance the gospel among their people who were suffering. Eventually, that ministry grew to aid the persecuted church around the world. Today, that ministry is known as Voice of the Martyrs. Church history is filled with examples like the Wormbrands, people called by God to an insurmountable task that would involve risking everything and trusting the hand of God. Still few of those called by God in Scripture are without their measure of hesitation. By now, in the book of, of Exodus, we might expect to see a reflexive trust and an immediate obedience in the life of Moses. After all, he heard the audible voice of God confirming the call on his life on that holy mountain, but there were lingering doubts dancing in his mind. This chapter reveals that even the greatest Old Testament prophet, that's what Moses is, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament still had his moments of uncertainty. Even Moses stands in need of God's grace at work in his heart for him to become the man who would lose his life for the sake of God in order to truly find it. Have you ever wrestled with the Lord over something that you knew he was calling you to do? Have you ever struggled to believe the promises of God recorded in Scripture that they will be fulfilled? Have you ever felt insufficient for a task that God laid on your heart? And the overwhelming response of God's people is, whew, it wasn't quite so overwhelming, but. <laughs> Our text this morning, Exodus 4, 1 through 17, contains an autobiographical account of Moses wrestling with God over these three questions. After introducing himself to Moses by disclosing his divine name, now Yahweh demonstrates his divine power. That's what's happening in Exodus 4, 1 through 17. 
The Lord gives Moses these supernatural signs that are meant to minister comfort to this newly appointed prophet. Yet, even after they are performed, Moses needs more. Ultimately, this section reveals that there's something deeper going on in Moses' heart that God must address. His apathy, his lack of trust, his default programming to depend on his own sufficiency rather than on the Lord. I've entitled the sermon, Wonders and Wondering. And I want to divide our text into two sections. First, the wonders of God, verses 1 through 9. And they are wonderful. And then second, the wandering of Moses, verses 10 through 17. So let me invite you, if you would, to stand your feet once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Though written long ago, speaks to us today. Exodus 4, 1 to 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you please be seated?
The first section of our text is brimming with the wonders of God. Before we discuss them, let's rehearse what we've heard so far in this conversation between God and Moses. The significance of this dialogue cannot be overstated in the story of Scripture. So far, God has miraculously called Moses by name, welcomed him into his fiery presence, spoken his divine name, and pledged the promise of his nearness to him. Then he commissions him to go and deliver his people. Moses has questions, five of them in all in this conversation. The first question was, well, who am I? To which God replied, I will be with you. The second question, well, who are you? To which God replied, I am that I am. Now he asks, well, what if they won't listen to me? And this is not an unreasonable question. It would take a great deal of faith on the Israelites' part to believe this prince of Egypt turned murderer, turned vagabond, turned fugitive. When he shows up and says, brothers and sisters, in the wilderness, a fiery bush spoke to me and I've come with a word from God. Baby, I'm back. Follow me. Moreover, in a sense, Moses was right. At times, the Israelites would not believe him. Instead, they would complain and even accuse him. We'll see him do that in a couple of chapters in 521. However, let's not forget, God had already promised him in chapter 318 that the people would believe him and listen to his message. So what we're starting to see is that Moses is doing more than requesting information. He's expressing hesitation. Instead of relying um, on God, he's, his heart is trembling with the idea. And instead of replying to the question verbally, God answers Moses by the work of his hand. Three specific signs are given, each which is incredibly significant in Egyptian life and religion. The first sign is the sign of the serpent. God asked Moses what's in his hand. Now, let's remember that when God asks a question, it's not because he needs to know the answer. It's because through the question he is teaching. Uh, to paraphrase Jason Isabel, God's questions are like directions to the truth. That's what the questions of God are like. So after Moses replied, well, it's my staff. He was instructed by God to throw it on the ground. Now this staff becomes an object lesson in the school of God. It was likely carved and fashioned into its shape by Moses himself. It was his faithful tool in his work of herding sheep and navigating the land. In the future, it's the same rod that he holds high as the Israelites are victorious in war and as they are delivered through the belly of the Red Sea. But none of that has come yet. He's just a guy out in the wilderness talking to a burning bush. Moses obeyed God. He threw his staff on the ground and instantly it becomes a slithering snake. Moses is so freaked out, he runs away. If I was writing the story, I would leave that out. If I was writing the story, I would leave this whole account out. But isn't the word of God so vulnerable and exposing Moses is not the hero of the book of Exodus. 
God is. So then God tells him to grab the snake by the tail. Now, if you've ever been to a course on snake grabbing, lesson one is don't grab the snake by the tail because the head turns around and the fangs dive into the skin. No, you don't grab the snake by the tail. You grab it by the head. But God had spoken, so Moses obeyed. But as soon as he grabs it, the snake didn't strike him. Instead, it just turns back to his trusty old staff. What a wild story. If I was a kid this morning going to church with my parents, I would be so thankful we get to talk about stories like this. Because kids, listen, every one of these are examples of God's power on display. That's what he's wanting to convince Moses of. It's what he's wanting to convince us of. So what was God's purpose in this sign? Verse 5 tells us, So that the people would know that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now let's think about what this sign points to. The sign of the serpent. We are first introduced to a serpent in Genesis 2 where one slithers into the garden of God and deceived Adam and Eve. It was there that God promised one day that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So this sign of God's power over a serpent is a reminder that God keeps his word. And soon, Moses, who is the seed of the woman, will deliver his people over Pharaoh, who is the seed of the serpent, in crushing his head as God delivers his people from captivity, of being stricken by Pharaoh. And now they will be free to worship him. It's also a sign that Yahweh is more powerful than the greatest earthly governmental power, even one whose symbol of power was the snake itself. You see, the Egyptians considered Pharaoh a son of God who wore a a crown with a serpent rising from it to intimidate and scare his enemies. Even more, Egyptians worshipped the serpent as a symbol of wisdom and healing in their lives. Ultimately, it was the serpent of old that they were worshipping who deceived mankind from the beginning. So this sign demonstrates God's authority over Egypt, over their king, and over Satan himself. God is more powerful than the serpent. Second, the sign of leprosy. So next, God tells Moses to put his hand in his coat, and he obeys the instruction. And when he slips his hand out of his jacket, it's covered with leprosy, white and flaky. If a snake had made him run, this would have totally freaked him out. Leprosy was one of the most severe and deadly diseases that one could be exposed to. There was no cure for it. It aggressively attacks the body, deteriorating the skin. It's incredibly painful. As God gives laws in the future, like in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, a person who had leprosy was considered unclean to even be a part of the community, much less to worship God with the people. God tells Moses to put his leprous-covered hand back in his coat again. And as he pulls it out the second time, it's totally restored. Who could do that but God? The Lord said, if they don't believe the first sign, they will believe this one. 
with that sign, God demonstrates his power to create, to control, to heal the most feared disease in humans in the ancient world. God is sovereign over all disease, including leprosy. Third, the third sign is given is the sign of the Nile River. God assures Moses, if they don't believe either of those signs or listen to what you have to say, then I will do this. And the this is seen in God's command as he's instructed Moses to take some water from the Nile River and then pour it on dry ground. And as he poured it, it would turn immediately to blood. And there's no comment given on whether Moses obeyed this direct command. We assume he did. What we know is that this last sign given in Exodus chapter 4 becomes the first sign of the ten plagues, which we'll get to, oh, in a couple of months. We know from history that the Nile River represented to the Egyptian people God. The Nile River was as God to them. One historian writes this, the river was endless in its bounty and the people sang its praises continually. It was the father of life, the mother of all, and the manifestation of God. God is showing that compared to his great power, the Nile River is a trickling stream. So those are the three wonders that God performs to get Moses' attention. The serpent, the leprosy, and the Nile. Each of these signs teach Moses and teach us the power of our God. So let's circle our thoughts around the power of God. In the hand of God, the ordinary staff of Moses became a supernatural spectacle of the power of God. In the hand of God, Moses' own hand, in a sense, died as he put it in his coat and was restored to life as he brought it out again. In the hand of God, common water was transformed into blood. And in the hand of God, our lives are transformed by the mercy of Christ. The lesson for Moses and the lesson for us is that God is all-powerful and he can take anything he chooses into his hand and use it for his own glory, including Moses' very life and yours and mine. There's a book of, of sermons preached by Francis Schaeffer in the early 70s. It was published by Crossway in 1974, entitled No Little People. And I heard uh, Ray Ortland mention a couple of times some years ago in sermons. I thought, I better get that, so I did. And um, this week I, I thumbed through it to find this quote from Schaefer's sermon entitled, No Little People, No Little Places. I love that. He, he's talking about uh, revival and renewal in the hearts of God's people. No little places, no little people. I reverse those, but you can do the math. And here's what he says. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, 
physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God, then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. The problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. You are not less than a stick of wood. Brothers and sisters, consider the mighty ways in which God could use your consecrated life with his mighty hand. What does it look like for us to be a people whose lives are consecrated unto the Lord, who trust in his fathomless power to believe that since our God has all authority over every governmental power of this world, we have nothing to worry over. And to believe that because our God reigns over every disease from leprosy to COVID-19, you and I can lay our heads asleep on a pillow of God's sovereignty and rest. To be assured that since our God is the only source of life and security, we need not look anywhere but to Him. Those are the truths of this passage. So let's inhale the truth of Scripture and exhale trust in our Savior. That's what Exodus 4, 1-9 through 9 are meant to do in us. And the wonders of God. The second section of our text reveals the wandering of Moses. Verses 10-17. through 17. Now the wonders that God performed in verses 1 through 9 were done with the intention to make Moses wonder with amazement. Instead, verses 10 through 17 show us they just left him wondering if he's even the right guy for the job at all and even wandering away from his call. I hope you can tell with my... I don't enunciate those vowel sounds to begin with well anyway, but it's ones with an O and ones with an A. Wandering with an O, wandering with an A. Do you hear the difference? There was no difference there. (laughs) Like he ran from Pharaoh and fled to Midian, we get the sense that Moses could lace up his sneakers and bolt away like a runaway bride at any minute. Let's look at what happens. The rebuttal of Moses in verse 10 is the fourth question. How am I supposed to talk? In verse 10, he admits he's not eloquent. He's slow to speech and tongue. And the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what Moses' condition was, similar to the way the New Testament doesn't tell us what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. But most scholars agree that this this impediment had something to do with a sort of lisp, or he was unable to make certain sounds when speaking. This call to deliver the people of God would require him speaking to the Pharaoh himself and to Egyptian dignitaries. And he's worried that they might not listen to him because of this handicap that he has. You might even notice the snarkiness in verse 11. He says, I've always been this way, God. 
And since you have spoken to me, it hasn't gotten better. How long has this conversation been? Fifteen minutes? I've always stuttered. And since this conversation, you haven't healed this. What's going on? How am I supposed to talk? God answers his question with a question. Who made man's mouth? Here, the creator speaks to his creation, asking if Moses thought it was possible for God to make a mistake. Here we see that God, the all-wise maker of all things, makes no mistakes, even in the physical disabilities of his people. There is not one physical disability that has missed his eye. No disabled person is a mistake from the womb to the tomb. In love, God has made everything for his glory according to his plan. And here God comforts Moses saying, I'll be with you. I'll give you the words to say. At this point, like his forefather Jacob, Moses is tired of wrestling. After four questions from Moses to God, four comforts from God back to Moses, he finally is just exhausted. Lord, please send someone else. And there there we have it. Moses' heart is finally revealed. His apathy, his insecurity, how his heart is wandering from God. He just doesn't want to do this. Life is good in Midian. He is free, unlike his people back in Egypt. He has a wife and he has children. He has a flock to tend. And then this haunting phrase, and the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. It is a fearful thing to have the anger of God kindled against you like embers that are glowing, about to burst into flames and consume the very life of Moses. Yet, in God's great mercy, Moses lives. And the one writing these words also writes in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God, slow to anger, rich in mercy, would forgive Moses' sin of unbelief. And for today, God says, fine. He says, your brother Aaron's coming to visit. He's a good speaker. I'll tell you what to say. You'll speak to Aaron as if God himself is speaking to Aaron. And then Aaron will relay the message of God to the people. God promises he'll be with both of them. He'll teach them what to do. I love how Phil Riken points this out. Moses was not being called to become an orator, just a reporter. He was never meant to try to speak eloquently in front of anyone. Just tell what God says. Just, just echo the word of God. It's much like preaching. I'm not trying to lean into my own abilities. That would get us through about 18 seconds. But just say what the book says. Hold up a high view of Christ. Let our hearts wonder week by week, year by year, as we're changed into the image and likeness of Christ through the ministry of his word. Ultimately, God was never concerned with Moses' speech problem. 
He was committed to Moses' heart problem. And God will work through this imperfect man to accomplish his perfect plan. The final verse includes God telling Moses, pick up that staff again, which brings this section to a close. So here, let's circle our thoughts around the sufficiency of God. The trouble, as I see it in the scene, is that Moses doubts God as the source of his sufficiency. Uh, The God who performed these miracles as signs to bolster Moses' confidence is simply not enough. Moses looks at his own wisdom and his own strength and his station of life and says, I can't do that. And he's right. He can't do these things. But God can. Often in our lives as Christians, we have this same tendency to look at our wisdom and our strength and our tendency, our station of life, and say, I can't do that. And we are right. We can't. But God can. Charles Bridges was an Anglican minister in the 18th century, 19th century in England. And um, he wrote this book called The Christian Ministry. It's never far from my reach in my study. And uh, he wrote a chapter in there called The Want of Faith, meaning the lack of faith that is often present in the hearts of people who want to minister the gospel, the good news, in any kind of context. In that chapter, he addresses the heart of this matter, using language from the story of Moses. He says, The main difficulty is not in our work, but ourselves. In the conflict with our own unbelief, in the form of either idleness or self-dependence, to meet the trembling question, who is sufficient for these things? Our answer is ready. Our sufficiency is God. How encouraging that we are nothing but we hold the rod of God's power in our hand, that his presence is pledged to bless our word, and that our poor ministrations, that means any kind of gospel ministry happening in the local church, any poor ministry of his all-powerful gospel are the appointed means to both gather and edify the church. It's God's power that gathers the church, and God's power that builds up the church. And so there the old pastor reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.16. Who, he's, Paul's thinking about, about having received the gospel and now trying to apply the gospel in his life and share the gospel of Christ with people around him. He says, who's sufficient for these things? And he answers himself. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything has come from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Brothers and sisters, let us lift our eyes this morning to Christ. Look to the signs that he has performed. Look to him as the source of all sufficiency. The common piece of wood that held our Savior became a spectacle of supernatural power. The very place where the seed of the woman would finally crush that serpent's head. His power demonstrated over not just leprosy and sickness, but death itself was demonstrated as Christ rose from the grave. And the transforming power of Christ, who can transform even the coldest, hardest, deadest heart. Deadest is not a word, but you're with me. 
to transform a heart of stone to flesh with a drop of the Savior's blood. So as we look at what God has called us to as ministers of the gospel, and if you're in Christ, you are a minister of the gospel, let us remember we can do nothing in our own strength. In our mission as disciples of Jesus, in our mission together as a church to reach this community and this world with the gospel of Christ, we are totally insufficient. But let us not say, like Moses, here I am, Lord, send someone else. Let us say, here am I, send me. In our call to follow Christ, to lay down our lives so that we might live. Here I am, send me. In our mission together, to hold out the goodness of Christ to a dying world. Here am I, send me. On the calling that God has on your life. Here I am, send me. The account of Moses wrestling with God is not entirely unique to him. We'll see prophets as the story of Scripture continues who would wrestle with God and wonder how they would go about fulfilling so great a call upon their lives. And then in church history, saints like Richard and Sabina Wormbrand would count the cost of dying to themselves and followed Christ. We too have heard the call of God, our ears open to his voice seen his glory in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, our eyes open to see the truth of who he is. We see the evidence of his divine power revealed in Scripture, and we see it in our lives. Yet, like Moses, we still wonder, are we enough? The answer resounding from the text, no, you are not. But he is. So as we conclude our study of scripture, let me encourage you. Keep looking at the wonders of God. His promises and presence. And may our hearts, which are so prone to wander in how we feel it, be filled with wonder, amazement at the God of all goodness, the God of glory and grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it shows us your heart, your character, your glory. Thank you for the wonders that you have shown to us that are meant to bring about steady and deepening faith in who you are. Let us be a people who look to your power and to your sufficiency in all things. Wean us off of our, our tendency to trust in ourselves, to depend on ourselves. Let us be a people who wholly look to Christ, laying down our lives that we might find life, life, eternal life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.